0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Carriage House Planning Report. I'm Casey Fult. I'm the owner and principal of Carriage House Planning. I want to welcome you today. Thank you for tuning in. And uh, I hope that our conversation today is thought provoking for you as we enter into the second quarter of 2021. It's hard to believe we've already raced through the first three months of the year. But alas, here we are. And uh, as we crossed over the one-year anniversary of the market bottom capitulation point from the 2020 sell-off uh, that was effectively brought about due to the government-imposed shutdowns as it relates to coronavirus, you know, we're on our way into the second quarter of the year. And I wanted to use today's show to... Bring to mind a consideration that may or may not have crossed your mind, but generally speaking, if we were to look at the broad circumstances or the broad conditions, both in the market and in the economy, I would propose and I encourage you to open your mind to the idea that what we're experiencing right now is what may be the most dangerous type of market to be an investor in and to be a planner as we look forward towards our ultimate financial futures now it doesn't seem that positing an assertion like that makes the most sense markets have been incredibly constructive now for well over a year or at least they've been constructive for just about a year with a a sharp sell-off about a year ago and uh, followed by a a rapid ascent and recovery but the reason that I would suggest that we are, in fact, witnessing market conditions that are of the most dangerous type are for a few reasons. I want to bring those reasons to mind today, and I also want to propose some considerations or some solutions that you may be able to employ to ensure that you don't necessarily fall prey to these Dangerous conditions, and you are able to remain buoyant through what may come down the line in the coming weeks, months, uh, and and years ahead. First and foremost, just the general sense of euphoria that seems to be laid across all market participants. There's definitely some sense of fear. There's some sense of pause for for you know contemplation about how it is that we could have such a drastic sell-off, how it is that we could then have such uh, turbulent economic conditions. And we still see that the market as a whole plows forward in an upward trajectory with some selling. Uh, I'm not going to say that we've been you know void of selling. Of course, there's been quite a bit of volatility since the middle of February. But if we look at, at kind of more the 50,000-foot view, what we're seeing is it's really a market that had this sharp, drastic sell-off a year ago, and then just this radically sharp ascent uh, back up. I've said this in a previous episode, but there's an old Wall Street saying that would uh, suggest that, that the market takes the elevator down, but the escalator up. And I think we've all kind of witnessed that at times seems like when the selling occurs, the selling occurs very fast and it's painful. Uh, but the recoveries are typically more drawn out. And in this case, while it was drawn out, uh, you know, the selling occurred over a three to five week period of time. The the real um, you know recovery, yes, it, it took a good bit of time following that. But as a whole, to be able to rebound as quickly as we did, at least across the major indices, I mean, it, it was really astounding. So that, that sense of euphoria where just about everyone who has an extra uh, scent to their name seems to have an interest in participating in markets, which is not a bad thing. The, the more participants in the market, that's usually a great indication of a very strong, very healthy marketplace. Uh, it also allows for uh, the marketplace of, of ideas and the marketplace of uh, perspective to come in and, and assist in creating market breadth which is, again, another healthy condition, but that euphoria from the perspective that the money that may be entering markets is not necessarily earned dollars, that is alone a single danger in and of itself. There's, there's no question about that. We all know that if you earn a dollar, the way by which you spend it is a bit more considerate. If you've worked very hard, if you've exchanged your time, your expertise, your talents for that dollar in return as, as compensation or pay, more often than not, you're going to be uh, a little bit more diligent in how you spend that dollar versus if you're just simply handed some quote unquote free money, uh, you, you may be a little bit more lackadaisical in how you spend that money. Yes, there are, of course, folks who they, they simply just need it to pay their bills. But to contrast that idea, there's also... Things like the uh, ban on evictions that has uh, alleviated some of the financial strain on the same folks that are receiving the stimulus money, and uh, this is not a criticism of folks like that. But oftentimes, if you are looking at people in in mass, this is not individuals. This is just statistically as a whole. These are not usually the most financially uh, educated individuals. And they often have tendencies to make less than prudent financial choices, especially when handed free money. So that is most certainly flying on the wings of euphoria, and it leads people to feel as though they can kind of use that money as as Vegas gambling money, which is not something that should be a huge part of the, the marketplace. But it has led to the types of conditions in many ways that we see right now. And, you know, as with just about everything, eventually the hens come home to roost and we will eventually find that those participants get flushed out. The sad part about it, though, is that it's probably going to then be spun in such a way, be it through the media or through these participants themselves, as though it was the market that did something bad to them when not being sophisticated or maybe not having a professional or if they think they have a professional, someone who's not actually a professional with expertise, you know, they're making decisions that, that don't take prudent and, and risk considerate decisions into play. And, you know, they're, again, they're kind of flying on the wings of euphoria. But to compound that, that idea and to take that idea of euphoria another level, something else that's becoming very prevalent, and it may be affecting you, This is, generally speaking, this is a a cognitive bias that human beings are subject to regularly. Uh, We all deal with it in many ways in our life, but right now it seems that there is a greater prevalence of it as it connects to or relates to both the economy and the markets, and that is this idea or this condition called cognitive dissonance. Uh, In its simplest terms, cognitive dissonance is the idea that the human brain is actually capable of holding two contradictory or conflicting belief systems at the same time. So actually believing two things that are, in some cases, maybe opposite of one another, and actually having a whole belief in both of these. There's a lot of examples of this, but in the case of, of markets right now, the way that I would position that is the idea that if you're willing to look at just about any broad data as it relates not only to markets, but also to the economy, you would probably come to the conclusion that it just seems very odd that things have recovered as robustly as they have. And they've done so in such a way that is it almost seems irrational in a sense. We've had this massive ascent in markets, but we also know that there's a lot of people who are still out of work. Our unemployment rate still remains very high. We saw that entire uh, supply chains were massively disrupted, and that's not even to mention the recent news about the container ship that's currently blocking up the Suez Canal, which has and will have uh, implications as far as the global supply chains for uh, the unforeseeable future. Uh, They were kind of just now... Getting their their legs back under them, and and then you get this kind of event that occurs, and boy, it's uh, you know one punch after the other. But as we look at at the general condition of our domestic economy, in combination with uh, the the global economy, because coronavirus was not just a a epidemic in one country. This is something that affected a lot of nations. Now, granted, some nations handled it far better than others. Uh, Sweden and and the like that seem to be getting a lot of attention Um, but that being said we're 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 all collectively dealing with this thing that kind of paused everyone in in some respects doesn't seem it paused everyone quite as much as it paused America Um, but there's all of these kind of pieces of data that that as we look at them we say it 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 just doesn't seem like we should be where we are. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Sure, you can justify that maybe, you know, the big tech names did what they did because they could continue operating at full steam while the rest of the uh, world was shut down. And yes, but at the end of the day, even these companies, the Facebooks and the Googles, whatever it is, you know, where do they make their money? They make their money, Generally, from selling data and selling advertisements and, and and that time, I mean, it's not like you go into Google and you pay for a subscription for Google. You know, most of their most of their revenues are coming from these other companies out there that are buying their product. And if those companies can't operate, well, then even the big tech names that are still operating at quote unquote full steam ahead, they're going to have a hiccup eventually. So to price them up and to buy them up and to exaggerate their price to earnings to the extent that we have, uh, that alone is, again, another case of irrationality. So as far as the cognitive dissonance is concerned, you've got this kind of rational mind that's saying it just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense that we are where we are and that this could recover as quickly as it did without any perceived backlash, aside from the political bickering that seems to be going on and will continue to go on in, in D.C., uh, there's no destructive event outside of that March sell-off that was quickly recovered. So on the one hand, you've got that belief system, but on the other hand, you've got this belief system that is fueled by the euphoria combined with the relativism, which is that idea, the fear of missing out. Well, other people are doing well, I want to do well too. Other people are gaining opportunity I want to gain opportunity too. This other belief system is, I want to participate because I can't afford not to, or I want to participate because there's so much opportunity. So the cognitive dissonance here is one mind says, no, things just shouldn't be this way. The other mind says, I want to be a part of this growth. And those two things collide, and they make contact, and they kind of batter one another. But in the human mind, it creates an immense amount of tension, a lot of stress, most of it unwittingly to the individual experiencing it. They have no idea that that's what's causing this kind of internal strife or this turmoil. And what ends up happening, and because a lot of this is done without kind of that conscious awareness, the the mind kind of has a safety switch. And what it'll end up doing is that safety switch will basically just roll the die and, and, and pick a side. And then it, it, will, it will buy in whole cloth to whichever side it picks. Now, what causes the brain to pick a side? More often than not, it has to do with the general sentiment that that individual is experiencing. So let's just say, for example, if you had two individuals with the exact same experience of cognitive dissonance, where they're looking at markets and they have this you know one scenario, or this one individual, rather, is seeing the exact same conflict. Things don't make a lot of sense, but I want to be a part of it. The other person, again, same exact experience or same exact feelings, but one of them has just come off of a, a great year in their portfolio, or they just got a pay raise, they're feeling good. Things are positive. For the other individual, they just had a uh, major car accident, right? Big expenses, big bills. Um, they've got you know other negative life events occurring. The person with the positive setting, more often than not, the brain will just automatically kind of say, don't worry about the stressor stuff. Right now, things are good. I'm good. Let's go with the good side of of the coin. And it will kind of buy in whole cloth to there's opportunities right in front of me. I need to take advantage of those. The individual whose kind of life experience has placed them in this more negative position they're going to tend to gravitate towards the, this doesn't make sense, this isn't good, things are not right, I need to kind of cast away any feelings that there might be an opportunity out there because there isn't an opportunity out there. So when considering those two hypothetical individuals, if we're looking at the, the populace as a whole, you know we're in a position right now where you've got this vaccine that's getting plenty of attention, you've got the media that has seemingly become remarkably quiet about the presidency about you know anything that would be scrutinizing of the administration this is a stark contrast to the past 4 years where it's it would be hard to wake up and not see some type of scathing headline about the administration about quote unquote leaks about all of these negative stories with big air quotes there about the president and his administration. Um, you know, Now, we, we're really not seeing a lot of that. So if we were to look at things in a, in a very relative context, we would say that that went from a negative to a positive, right? Things were getting better. Now, you take that and compound that with markets that have been doing quite well. Yes, you know, we, we know what's been going on over the past a month or two with with higher levels of volatility. But as a whole, things are most certainly better than they were about a year ago, you've got the vaccine environment seems to be gaining more and more um, speed, which is, again, feeding into that things are getting better, things are positive things are so as a whole, generally, people are in that camp where things are good. So as they deal with their cognitive dissonance, more often than not, their default switch is going to flip. And it's going to turn off that scrutiny, that negative Nancy, that, uh, that, that voice in their head or that belief system that they hold that is of the more nervous, timid, unsure, you know, this just doesn't make a lot of sense. And instead, it's going to fly towards opportunity, 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 I want to be a part of that opportunity. Uh, I don't want to miss out, I, you know, the FOMO, the fear of missing out, right? I don't want to be, I don't want to be left on the sideline. And, and that is, that is dangerous. That is typically when we end up seeing markets find themselves correcting. Now we don't currently have evidence suggesting that we're there yet, but this, that's why, again, this is the most dangerous market. Once that starts to appear things will become less and less dangerous, but we'll also become less and less inclined to want to participate because things will be a little bit negative, right? That, that's kind of the irony of the situation. But with that cognitive dissonance being, for lack of a better word, um, smoothed over and we're not having that conflict in our mind, in a sense, we kind of throw caution to the wind. And, and this would be kind of point number three as to why we're in a dangerous market. And that is the, the idea of throwing caution to the wind it's a little bit deeper than just kind of having an automatic switch in your brain that, that just kind of picks the opportunity versus the destructive capacity of conditions in front of me. Instead, throwing caution to the wind is, you know that there is a greater level of complexity to things. You're aware that that complexity exists. But rather than seek to better understand it or to explore the unknown, the things that aren't front and center, that aren't really right there, kind of smacking you in the face, you know, returns on your portfolio are kind of right there. They're smacking you in the face. Um, the lack of overwhelming negative news and st- instead more kind of positive, I guess, generally news, you know, that's that's right there in your face. What's underneath that, though, most people will not look to understand the nuance and the complexity because it's just simply easier not to. And that's kind of good in reality, but it's good in terms of your quality of life. It's not always good in terms of your decision making as it relates to your portfolio and as it relates to how you're going about positioning your investments and the decisions that you're making that are above and beyond your traditional liquid investments. People are looking at, at the real estate market going, it's just been going up, it's just been going up, it's just been going up. I need to go buy a house so I can rent it. Those same people aren't even considering the fact that the government imposed this you know, eviction ban where landlords can't evict a tenant. Now, that's temporary, yes. I'm not going to say that that's a permanent thing. But the sheer idea that the government imposed that, there, that there's been a precedent set. And that should be a consideration for anyone who thinks that, that owning real estate for the sake of an investment, that's going to change our rental marketplace in a big way long term. The implications are not clear right now. But if you just simply throw caution to the wind and you go in headstrong without considering just how potentially dangerous that precedent might be, and that's in addition to a number of other precedents that have been set just in the past year. If you're not going into that deeper consideration, you're setting yourself up for a bad decision. All of this is building up to ultimately what I think is one of the most dangerous aspects of this market condition. We've talked a little bit about cognitive dissonance. We've talked about the euphoria. We've talked about throwing caution to the wind in environments like these not considering the complexity, but instead favoring an oversimplification of what is otherwise a more nuanced situation. That then leads to point number four. Point number four is each of our individual experience memories. Now, if you were to go into your favorite search engine and type in remembering bad and good or positive memories versus negative memories, you're gonna be overwhelmed with the results that say, studies suggest that negative memories are stronger than positive, or studies suggest that we more readily remember negative experiences over positive, that's going to be pretty much all you find. Now, I won't disagree wholly with those studies. I I have no reason to. I'm I'm by no means a, a social psychologist. I'm just simply interested in it. I'm I'm an armchair uh, expert in that realm, and I know that, right? I'm going to call myself out on that one. But where those headlines and, and the underlying studies may be missing a part is we often will remember the negative experiences that were out of our control. Now, when I say out of our control, most people who were alive when 9-11 occurred can pretty much place themselves in the the moment in time and in the in the in the space that they were in their life and they can almost recall exactly where they were that's something that is a unique attribute of our minds we have a tendency to be able to really stamp in our brains what happened when something big a big event occurred and a big negative event in a lot of ways that's something that was out of our control though um, there's been plenty of negative events that we can easily remember that were out of our control. Losing a loved one, you tend to be able to remember exactly how you felt. You tend to remember that experience. The positives, yeah, there's a ton of positive experience we do forget. However, when it comes to decisions that we make in the past, what is also kind of an ironic twist in our crazy brains is that we will actually tend to remember decisions that we make more positively than negatively. So we've all heard the term buyer's remorse, this idea that you buy something and then afterwards you take it home or you you get it or whatever it is, and you think to yourself, oh man, I really shouldn't have spent the money on this, or oh, this thing really isn't worth what I paid, or whatever it is. That's its own condition. But when we're making bigger decisions in life, once some time has passed following that decision, We actually have a funny way of kind of justifying the decision, whether it was good or bad. In the case of it being a good decision, of course you're going to justify it. You're going to believe in it. And it was a good decision. You should. But we'll also paint some of our more negative decisions in a more positive light, or we'll just forget them altogether. This idea has been termed something along the lines and you'll hear different phrases for it. But the, the one that I like the most is choice supportive bias. In other words, our brain will bias itself towards supporting the choices that we make versus antagonizing or or criticizing, scrutinizing those choices. Now I mentioned the buyer's remorse concept. That's very immediate, but as we look longer term in our memories, if we get out of that immediate event, you just made the purchase. You may have that buyer's remorse. And we look a little bit further down the line. You do tend to look back in a more positive light. Now, there's going to be exceptions to this. Of course, there's the, you know, the classic, the, the Tom Hanks movie, Money Pit, right? The idea that you bought a just a horrible house and you just sunk tons and tons of money into it. Um, you know, those are exceptions to the rule. But this is something that plays very handily in portfolios. And in investments, a lot of people, especially people who make their own investment decisions, they don't have that layer of distance that comes with having an expert, professional investment advisor working with them. And that's not to say that everyone should have that person. I'm not suggesting that at all. Uh, that that you know, there's a bias there for me, of course, and I have to acknowledge that. Yes, I I I, I this, that's what I do. That's my profession, but by separating myself from those dollars, I'm going to be far more diligent. I'm going to be far more critical of the, own, of the decisions that I make because it's going to affect my clients. And more often than not, my clients are going to remember the good decisions that I make as good. And they're going to remember the bad decisions I make as bad. However, if they made those exact same decisions themselves, as they recall them, they're going to paint them The good decisions in a very positive light, but they'll also paint a lot of their bad decisions in a more positive light than they would, again, if I made that decision for them, or they may just forget about those bad calls that they made along the way. This type of marketplace has reinforced in a lot of people's eyes this idea that they make very good investment decisions. Over the past year, you could pretty much throw a dollar at the wall and it will stick. You could put your money into just about anything, and you probably did okay if you just bought big indices, generic investments, you know, big companies. You know, if you're going to be in the stock market, if you're going to buy just individual stocks, you know, go buy any of the big names, any notable name companies. You're going to be probably positive on those investments. Most mutual funds, you probably are sitting there with a positive return. ETFs, same idea, right? Unless you're, of course, you know, going inverse to the market or, or you're buying maybe you know, something like gold at the wrong time, whatever it was. But generally speaking, you're doing well. So that's, that's reinforcing in and of itself. It's kind of this idea of, of, oh, I'm a good investor. You very well may be. But if you didn't make investment decisions on any type of defined discipline, on any type of deeper consideration, if instead it was just kind of on a whim, as you look back at the decisions that you made, one, you're going to paint your positive decisions very, very positively. You're going to recall them positively. You're going to tell others about them in a very positive light. If you made negative decisions or less productive decisions, you'll probably paint them in a more positive light. Again, if you were to have the same decision made by an investment professional, you might say, well, oh, you, you didn't do as well as X, Y, and Z, right? The scrutiny will be there, but that self-scrutiny won't exist to the same effect. So that will set you up then as you look forward and it will reinforce the idea that you can keep doing this, that this will continue. It won't. Now, I don't know when it won't. That's not what I'm going to sit here and tell you. I'm simply highlighting the fact that this market is a very dangerous one for this particular reason well, these main four reasons. You've got general sense of euphoria. You combine that with the idea that there is this cognitive dissonance that most of us are experiencing right now. You take that a step further and we end up flipping the switch. We end up kind of turning off the the negative belief system or the cautionary beliefs in favor of the, I don't want to miss out, I need to be a part of this, whatever it is. So you throw caution to the wind You don't want to overanalyze things. You just simply want to get in there and be a part of the success. And then all of that is crowned by this idea that you're going to have that choice supportive bias. You're going to be recollecting the decisions you made in a very positive light, even if they weren't the most positive decision for you. Why has the market been going up? More often than not, it's because there's this massive buyer behind the scenes that a lot of investors don't even consider but the federal reserve in combination with of course the treasury policies the monetary policies combined with the fiscal policies you know we're we're pumping money into the economy we are stabilizing in in quotes there markets we're ensuring that money is easy that it flows if you look at the m2 money supply which is the uh, money supply in circulation we've seen a growth that has really i mean it's it if you can you know see a chart of it i'll try to include one uh in the show notes here but go look at that and recognize just how much money has been pressed into the marketplace and then to be able to say oh i've been making great investment decisions the question is have you maybe you have but there's a higher probability, at least in this type of marketplace, that maybe you haven't. Don't let that cloud your vision as you look forward. So I mentioned at the very start that I'm going to bring a couple of thoughts to mind as term, in terms of why I feel that these conditions are often the most dangerous for investors, but I also want to give you some solutions. Now, as far as the euphoria is concerned, you know, what are you going to do about that? Well, not to be a contrarian. I don't think you should just be a, a wholehearted contrarian. Uh, you know, I've, I've used the analogy at times in the past that uh, even, a, even a broken clock is right two times a day. And a lot of contrarians are that way. When they're right, yes, they're very right. And that's great. But the problem is, is they're not consistently right. Uh, being a contrarian for the sake of just simply not wanting to be a part of a bigger event, that's not the best thing to do. What instead I would suggest is, as you look at the euphoria, don't let that cognitive dissonance switch automatically switch off in your brain. If you ever find yourself not scrutinizing something that you believe, if you say, I've got this belief that things are gonna be good and I've got all the opportunity in the world and I should be invested or whatever it is, and you're not saying, why shouldn't I be? If you ask yourself that and you can't answer the question, therein in and of itself is, is a problem. But if you're not even asking yourself, what's the other side, then you're already falling prey to having that, that switch flipped behind the scenes. In your mind, you flipped the switch and you didn't know you did it. And now you're at, at big risk. So always scrutinize your beliefs and make sure that you actually believe them. Find the other perspective and make sure that you can argue it away. Make sure that you can kind of console yourself into uh, a, a sense of confidence that the way that you're thinking is in fact correct or on track. Now, that's going to not necessarily eliminate the cognitive dissonance. In fact, it will probably support the cognitive dissonance. But uh, having that awareness that that effect or that impact is, is happening in your mind, the idea that you might feel that sense of stress in the decisions that you're making, you might think to yourself, I just, I feel uncertain. I feel jittery. I feel maybe a sense of anxiety, something like that. If that's going on, know maybe why you have that feeling. It could be because you're not sure, because you are holding these two belief systems that are in direct contradiction to one another. And by having that awareness, you're going to be able to say to yourself, okay, now I need to better understand where are my fears? Where are they coming from? Why is it that I'm uncertain? But also why am I so eager to go put myself out there and to be a part of this thing and to make sure that I am also participating in the success that I perceive others to be participating in. A great way to solve that particular problem is to bring in a secondary party, preferably one who's an expert. If you are finding that you simply cannot kind of work your way through that and rationalize and make sense of it, having a professional to bring in a third party, or, or in this case, a second party, but an outside perspective, looking in on your condition, your situation, and providing you with advice, providing you with feedback, and providing you with a different perspective, that may actually help quell that cognitive dissonance in your mind. Now, throwing caution to the wind, the best thing I can say is that goes back to the euphoria conversation. Just don't do it. Don't ever find yourself in a position where you're not being self-scrutinizing, where you're not... Being aware that there is another side rather than just what you think, you believe, what you've committed to, there is a different perspective and know what that is. And again, that's where an expert can really be helpful. But as far as, as the biggest piece to this puzzle, again, the kind of crown jewel here, that idea of, of the choice supportive bias, when you're looking back at your own history, recognize A, when luck was luck. Be honest with yourself. Even professionals like myself, sometimes we just get lucky. And by golly, I'm going to celebrate my luck. I have no problem doing that. I tell clients all the time, we're going to celebrate it when we just got lucky. Maybe it was a market timing, not error, but a market timing benefit, right? We just so happened to put money into the markets and then the next day, there's no way we would have known it, but great news hit and all of a sudden things are just doing wonderfully. That is luck. There was no way that I could read the tea leaves there. I was making the decision for a different reason, one that was prudent, one that was well analyzed, one that was disciplined. And I just got lucky. Know where your luck is the cause for your success, not the you know, pure talent. Now, a lot of of people who I admire have have said that you know luck favors those who are prepared or or something to that effect right luck is luck is in the hand of of the individual who works hard whatever that is yes more often than not it is but to not think that what you're getting is at least a stroke of luck you're fooling yourself you're being dishonest with yourself and that will ultimately hurt you the other thing to do or to consider as you're dealing with that choice supportive bias is recognize when a decision was made with discipline and when it wasn't. A lot of people can justify in their mind, oh, I did this because, but they're looking with hindsight. When you're making the decision itself, do you have a discipline that you are sticking to, even though it may contradict what you think or what you feel? A discipline that was established in a better time. A discipline that was established in a more certain time whatever that is. This goes to the financial planning as well as the investment decisions. We design plans for a reason. It doesn't mean that they're fixed and they never change. Plans change all the time. I always tell clients, plans are a working document. They are living, breathing. They are going to change as life, as conditions, as all types of things occur. But in times of stress, strain, volatility, turmoil, whatever it might be, if you're making decisions solely on emotion and if you're making decisions strictly because you feel like it or you think it's the right thing to do or it makes sense at the time, chances are it's not a good, well-thought decision. Now, you might still get lucky, which would be great, but it doesn't mean that you're making the decision for the right reason. And that choice supportive bias is going to come in and it's going to give you this little kind of participation trophy afterwards. It's going to make you feel like you were a winner, but were you really a winner? Or did you just happen to get lucky? Because the other side of that is, I don't know, whatever the antithesis of a participation trophy is, the harsh reality that you did not win. Um, And I don't want you to experience that. I want you to experience the Beneficial results of a a disciplined approach to participating in the markets, don't chase after what your next door neighbor has or what Joe Schmo has or what the guy on TV has. Or Recognize what you need to achieve in terms of your portfolio in order to achieve your financial freedom long term. I've said this time and time again, and you'll hear me say it many more in the future. Last I checked, you can't eat a dollar. They're not very comfortable to use as a pillow or a blanket. They don't work very well to build a house with. However, those dollars can be used to purchase food, sheets, bedding, roof material, uh, framing materials. They can build a house. They can take you on a vacation. They can. But know what it is you're working for. And then assign your investments, your hard-earned dollars, your committed savings, assign them to those things you're trying to achieve, not to this infinitely unattainable goal of the most growth ever or the most possible growth. If you're measuring your performance year in and year out based on how either others do or how an index does or whatever it is. Those can be constructive to make sure that you're not totally off track, but to compare them and then to see them as the end all be all, that's a very dangerous game to play and that's why financial planning is such a critical component to good, prudent, long-term investing and investment success. That's all for today. I hope that my brief conversation about the most dangerous market conditions uh, has been helpful for you. I strongly encourage you to be considerate of the conditions that we currently uh, see. As I mentioned during the show today, these conditions are not necessarily suggestive that things are, are imminently bad or that they're imminently going to uh, see some kind of major downturn. I don't suggest that. What I do suggest, however, is that by falling prey to these dangerous conditions and by allowing yourself to kind of ease into the the comfort zone, the easiest possible thing, and just kind of going with the conditions as they are, may end up having negative consequences that far exceed what those negative consequences may need to be during a time when things may get a little bit more negative. I wish you a wonderful week ahead whenever you're listening to this. If you ever have any questions, if you ever have any thoughts, or if you want to have that expert opinion, that second point of view, the third party looking in, please do give Carriage House Planning a call or go online to our website at www.carriagehouseplanning.com and schedule an introductory meeting with us. We'd love to hear about what it is that you want to achieve. What are those things that you're working so hard for? Why do you have investments? What are they reaching for? What are they going to help you achieve? What is your financial freedom? Once you know what that is, we can then help you better understand how to get there. I look forward to talking to you all again soon. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Investment advisory and financial planning services are offered through Carriage House Planning, LLC, a registered investment advisor authorized to do business in states where registered or otherwise exempt from registration. Nothing discussed during the show should be viewed as investment advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please contact us at 727-643-8666 or you can schedule an introductory meeting via our website at www.carriagehouseplanning.com.